Well, good morning, church. I want to invite you to pray with me. I want to pray from Psalm 55 this morning. David writes these words. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan. Father, we bow before you, and God, um, like David, our hearts cry out to you. And God, we ask that you would give ear to our prayer this morning. God, we're thankful that you hear us, that you long, Lord, to answer the prayers of your children. And Father, we want to pray in line with your word uh, this morning. We ask, God, that you would hide not yourself from us this morning. God, we pray that you would hear our plea for mercy. Father, we know how much we need you this morning, and we long to draw near and to have you draw near to us. And so, God, we offer our, our complaints. As David says to you, we petition you, we beg of you, God, would you meet with us this morning in power and transform us, Lord, into the likeness of our Savior, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be back together this morning, and you can grab your Bible if you haven't already and turn to the book of Ruth. We are working our way through this book, and it's so fitting during this season that we look at this theme of light in the darkness, light in the darkness. And this morning, we're going to be looking at how the story of Ruth continues to unfold, particularly in um, Naomi's case in this first chapter. And we're going to look specifically at verses 19 and 22. Of, of chapter 1. And I've entitled this message, Pain Management. Now, there are countless people who live their lives in chronic pain, uh, to varying degrees of pain, some in immense pain, some just with nagging pain. But pain is a normal part of human existence. And there's an entire field of, of study and uh, medicine devoted to pain management helping people deal with the pain that they experience in their life. The pain is always there, but you can learn to live with the pain and learn to live through the pain. You can find ways to minimize it. You can even find at different seasons a great reprieve from the pain. But chances are pain is always going to be present in some form or another in our lives. It's never going to go away. And the truth is that the deepest pain that we can experience in this life, we, we know this, it's not physical, it's deeper than that. It's, it's emotional, it's mental anguish, it's heartache, it's spiritual in nature. It's when we're forced to wrestle through, especially as Christians, the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. How do we live in that tension knowing that, that we experience so much pain and hardship in this life and yet we believe that God is so good? It's in those moments of deep despair and utter darkness that we begin to ask questions like, where are you, God? And if you love me, why is this happening to me? And this is what happens in the darkest moments of our lives. And we can't avoid pain. It's, it's inevitable. It's built into this broken world. But we can learn, thankfully, how to cope with the pain that we experience in life. We can learn how to manage the pain. We can learn how to live even when experiencing incredible amounts of pain. 
And that's what we see here in Ruth. We see a story of God's grace in helping Naomi and Ruth learn to live through the pain they're experiencing. And there's so much we can learn from this example. Let's read it together beginning at verse 19. Here's what the Word of God says. So the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Here we see how we can learn to live through pain. And first, I want you just to notice this, that I can learn to live through pain when I understand that life will be bitter and I must turn back to God. It's inevitable that life will become bitter. If it's not bitter in some ways to you now, just continue to kind of trudge through the muck of life and watch how you will experience in many ways the bitterness of life. Here, Naomi, remember, she has experienced immense bitterness in her life. We have to just remember the darkness that she has been walking through. She's lost her husband, Elimelech. As they went through this famine in Israel, they departed and, and lived in Moab. They lived there for 10 years, and after Elimelech died, both of her sons died, and now she's left with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. <clears throat> and here she rolls back into the town of Bethlehem, her hometown, and you can see here that there is this sense of shock and disbelief, but I think there's, there's more to it than that. Yes, she had been gone for 10 years, but notice, notice what the women of the town say. Is this Naomi? And I think it's fair to read a, a sort of confusion there. They're actually wondering, is this really her? You see, the toll of 10 years of pain and darkness have worn uh, out on her. It's visible now. Her appearance seems to be slightly different, maybe incredibly different than when she had first left. And what's so interesting is that Naomi's name literally means pleasant or pleasant one. And as she walks back into town, remember, she's already told us in the first chapter as she spoke to Ruth that she is exceedingly bitter. And now she says to these women, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant one. Call me Mara, which literally means bitter. She looks at her life and she thinks and she says that the Lord has dealt very bitterly with her. The one who had left Bethlehem, Bethlehem as the pleasant one, Naomi, a young, energetic woman in the prime of her life has now returned this haggard, destitute, old-looking woman. Again, the wear and tear of, of life and the pressures have become visible on her face and maybe in the way she carries herself. The bitterness of life had taken its toll in more ways than one. It's interesting, isn't it, how the pain of life can actually alter our visible appearance. 
We, we've all seen this in before and after photos of people who are in high pressure jobs or positions. Take, for example, the president of the United States. You've all seen those pictures of when he started in office. He looks chipper and ready to go. He's eager. He's energetic. He maybe even, though he's not young in age, he has got a youthful exuberance about him, ready to take the bull by the horns. And then you look at uh, pictures after four years, after his first term is over, and you're like, oh, he, he looks like he could use a, at least a, a good night's sleep, a nap every now and again. And if he's lucky enough to be elected into a second term, you look at him after the eight years in office, and, and what you're looking at is shocking. It looks almost like a completely different person. The pressures and the pains and the hardship in just a short amount of time can do immense damage to us, both, listen, visibly, but also internally. And that's what we see, I think, here. What they see is this visible expression of pain and how it's worn out her, her, her appearance and her demeanor. But we know that the external appearance is actually pointing towards a deep sense of loss and hardship and pain in her life. Pain changes us for good or for ill. But how we process the pain will determine how it will change us. It will determine what kind of person we become. Life will be bitter. There's no question about that. The only question is, will you become bitter? Will you allow the bitterness of life to destroy you, to ruin you? We need to remember as we look at this story and as we consider our lives and the bitterness we experience that, that bitterness is the result of living in a world that is cursed by sin. Sin has produced bitterness in this world. It's wreaked havoc in this world. You look around the world and you see all of the tragedies, maybe at a global scale, maybe at an individual level, and in personal experience. And we simply need to be reminded that all of this is the result of sin. Sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve, that cursed our existence, that made everything difficult and painful. Every hardship we experience in this life is a result of sin generally living in a fallen world. But some of the sin, or excuse me, the pain that we experience in this life is the result of sin specifically. Specifically sin that we have committed or sin that has been committed against us. It's interesting that we will offer suffer in massive ways because of our own sinful living. We need to be reminded that here, Naomi and her husband Elimelech had disobeyed the command of God. The nation as a whole had been suffering because of their own sin. They had rebelled against God and God simply did what he promised he would do. He warned them of the consequences of sin and that's a grace of God. He told them in Leviticus 6 and Deuteronomy 28 that if you sin against me, I will, I will bring calamity upon you. We don't know how much specific sin may be involved in the suffering of Naomi, but we know this, that sin leads to suffering in all of our lives. We look around the world and it's possible that even right now you are seeing sin wreak havoc in your own personal life. Either way, it's likely that you're in some way feeling the bitter effects of living in a sinful world. Maybe you're living with illness or chronic pain. Maybe you're living with infertility and, and barrenness and you're longing for a child and God has not seen fit to bless you with a child. Maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one. 
Maybe you're right now in the midst of a broken relationship where there's constant turmoil and the pain is so immense. Maybe you're facing a, 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 the reality of a wayward child in your life that you long to see come home and return to Jesus. Maybe you're experiencing a job loss right now, financial insecurity, or maybe even financial ruin. There are countless ways that we experience the bitterness of sin in our lives. But what we may forget when we look at Naomi's story is how she has responded to the bitterness of life. You see, she hasn't remained in Moab. She has turned back to God. And this is something so admirable that we must take note of. Don't miss this. She, she didn't stay where she was. She didn't stay in, in enemy territory. She didn't remain in this condition of this place of sin. Instead, she saw that her only hope lay in turning back to the place of God and the promise of God. You see, what we see here is she realized the only hope she had was turning back to God. And loved ones, this is true for you and I. Regardless of, of how far away we've gone from God, regardless of how long we've been away from God, regardless of where we find ourselves today in the midst maybe of sinful rebellion against God, the, the truth for Naomi is the truth for us. Life may be bitter, but we must turn back to God. Today is the day that we are called to turn to God to look and see that our only hope lies in Him. And it may take some time to get there, but we need to get there. She's still processing the pain, but here Naomi has taken the first step. Bitterness of life, listen, can bring ruin or restoration depending on where we turn when we meet it. And the call for us is to turn back to God. I love the call of Scripture to constantly turn our eyes towards Jesus. I read this this week in a, in a book I was reading. The author said this, The Christian life really boils down to two steps. The first step is this, go to Jesus. I said, just go to Jesus. He, he has everything we need. Go to Jesus. The first step in the Christian life. And notice what he says the second step is. See number one. That's right. That's it. The Christian life is all about a life of going to Jesus for all that we need. All of our hope is found in Him. In the midst of all the pain and all the bitterness of life, we need to keep returning and running back into the arms of Jesus. His heart is for us. In fact, the author wrote this in the same book. He says this, Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly, so go to Him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, He is there. He lives there, right there, and His heart for you, not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is His home. Go to Him. If you knew His heart... You would. Oh, how we need to remember in the midst of the bitterness of life, the heart of God, the Father for us, the heart of Jesus Christ for us. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest because I am gentle and lowly. God loves when his children run to him and return to him. He doesn't want to cast us away or kick us to the curb because of our disobedience and rebellion. No, he wants to welcome us home. He wants to hold us tight. He wants to remind us that in him and with him, everything is going to be all right.
We must run to God. You say, how do I do this? Well, if you've been living in sin today or if you don't know Jesus Christ and and you've never placed your faith in him, you need to do this. You need to turn to God by repentance and faith. Repent of your sin. See that it is your sin that has kept you distant from a relationship with God. See that your sin deserves punishment from God, that, that it is actually a part of the reason why we suffer. But see that God loves you so much that God came running after you. That Jesus Christ hung on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He took the sting of death for you so that you can know the fullness of life in him. He rose from the grave so that you can trust in him and find the life that you have been longing for. Maybe you're suffering today and and it's not because of some specifics in your life. It's just because of sin generally. and, And you're wondering, what do I do? Listen, the answer for you is simply this. Confess your need for God. That's how you turn to him. Turn and say, Jesus, I need you. God, I need you. And maybe you you can't even find the words to say. Just throw yourself at his mercy and his grace. Trust in him again. Cling to him. Return to him. You can choose today to stop and turn back to God. Next, you need to understand this. Understand that hearts will be broken and I must cry out to God. This is so critical. If you're going to live, learn to live through the pain, we need to understand, yes, we live in in a world where there is bitterness, and that means that our hearts will be broken by the bitterness and sting of sin. It will impact us in profoundly deep ways. And the answer to that is to cry out to God. And here in the text, we see the condition of Naomi's heart It's been shattered into a thousand little pieces. It's difficult here to decipher the exact nature of her response. I mean, is this, is what she says in this next section here, is this recognition of of what's happened? Is this an accusation? Is she accusing God for what's happened to her life? We're not entirely sure, but I can tell you this. I, I think more, this is more recognition. You see, this sounds very similar to the laments that we see in scripture from many of the Old Testament saints like Job and David. Lament may be a new word for you, something that you're unfamiliar with, but lament is a common concept in the scriptures. Let me just maybe define it for you. Lament has been described as the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. I love that. It's the honest cry of a a hurting heart that's wrestling with this this unbelievable paradox, the the, the paradox of, of pain in our life, and yet the promise that God is good. How do we live in that tension? Ultimately, lament is, is rooted, you see, in what we believe about God. It is a cry to God and a prayer to God that is loaded with theology. It flows from a broken heart that recognizes a broken world and realizes that only God could heal the brokenness. Naomi here, listen to what she says. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
Now, Naomi here isn't exactly crying out to God, not directly at least, indirectly I think she is. And it's likely that what she says here is an accurate reflection of how she has been crying out to God. This is probably an accurate picture of what her prayer life has looked like for quite some time. And by the way, there's much here that needs to be affirmed. There's so much good theology that we need to recognize here. And I just want to draw this out. See, in the midst of her pain, she recognizes some things that are true about God that have a stabilizing effect in our lives and help us live through the pain. Notice this first, she recognizes that God is real. She actually states that there is a God. I mean, she's declaring the reality of the existence of God. In the midst of her pain and heartache, she's not denying his existence, but just the opposite. She's affirming his existence. She's like Job, who refuses to forsake her belief in God. You see, for her, pain doesn't remove the existence of God. It proves the existence of God. Pain reminds us that life is not supposed to be this way, that there is an ultimate good, there is an ultimate truth, there is something that is objective, that, that, that this world was supposed to be, and what we have now is fundamentally flawed and broken. Secondly, not only does she see that God is real, she sees that God is powerful. She says God is powerful. I mean, did you notice what she says here? She refers to, the, to God uh, twice as the Almighty. The Almighty. And here she's simply recognizing that God is powerful. He can do whatever He wants to. That God is capable. God is able. Yes, He can bring calamity, but that also means that God can do the miraculous. He can do the supernatural. He can do good. She also recognizes, third, that God is sovereign. Did you catch that? God is sovereign. She, she is saying that God has done this. God is superintending this. God is overseeing every area of my life. And, and loved ones, we need to recognize this in, in our lives too. Whether it's good, bad, or ugly, God is sovereign. God is still in control. God is on his throne. And however you want to see this, that God has done this, maybe, maybe that's how she feels in this moment. God has allowed this. God has ordained this. It's similar to what Job says, isn't it? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. In the midst of his heartache, heartbrokenness, and tragedy, he can say this, God is still sovereign. Lastly, she makes mention of the fact that God is just or that God is a judge. Notice she says this, that God has testified in verse 20, and the Lord has testified against me. The Lord Almighty has brought this calamity upon me. That, that, that testifying language is judicial language. She is recognizing that God is the one who is the supreme authority in the universe. That everyone and everything is ultimately accountable to Him. And here she is recognizing the justice of God. She's not necessarily sure why God has allowed this. But she recognizes that God is the one who is just in doing whatever He chooses and we look at this and we need to ask this question, is, is what she's doing here okay? Is it okay for her to make these kind of statements? And I think the answer is yes. Again, what she's doing here reflects so much of the Old Testament, this idea of lament. It reflects people like Job, who says in Job 7.20, he says this to God, Why have you made me your mark? reflects the heart of David through so many of the Psalms, including the one I prayed at the beginning of this message. And I want you just to consider this. The book of Psalms itself 
is one third of it is made up of what are referred to as lament psalms. One third of the entire Psalter is considered lament psalms. There's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, a poetic book, but a book of history. That, that is one giant lament in the midst of immense tragedy where the people of God are facing the judgment of God, where Judah had sinned against God and God had brought in the Babylonians and, and the people of God are now being dragged off to captivity as, as their city is being destroyed and the people are, are wailing and mourning. And yet at the very heart of the book of Lamentations, like the heart of the Lament Psalms and the heart of this here, we see God is the one who is compassionate and merciful. It's fascinating to look at the Psalms themselves and just consider how the psalmists cry out. Look at these ones here. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10, verse 1. Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In Psalm 22, Psalm of David, but a Psalm that Jesus embodies on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 44, 23 and 24, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 88, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? You see, we see this all throughout the scriptures. Now, what we see with Naomi is that she is brokenhearted. And what we learn from the scriptures is that we are actually given permission by God to cry out to him, to lay our hearts bare to him in the midst of the, the, the pain, to lay that down, to pour it out before him. And you know, so many of us struggle with this concept, not just to do it, with this, the, the idea of doing this. It seems sacrilegious. It seems inappropriate. It doesn't seem right. We don't think it's appropriate to speak this way to God, let alone this way of God to others, like Naomi has done here. But the scriptures teach us otherwise. You see, this is how we process pain. Not by being silent, but by crying out. It's, it's one step that moves us further towards the end destination of finding hope and peace and rest. We're given permission to bring our complaints to God. There is such a thing, as we read earlier, as godly complaining. Now, complaining is not a word that we normally associate with with any sense of positivity. In fact, none of us likes a complainer, and yet we need to see that there is a biblical form of complaining to God that is not only appropriate, it's acceptable and expected from God's people who are in the midst of pain. This passage in the Lament Psalms, they present so much 
a creative complaining, you could say, different forms of offering complaints to God, which are simply, listen, authentic expressions of sorrow, of fear, of frustration, and of genuine confusion. How long, O oh Lord, right? And I just want maybe for you to consider this. The book of Psalms was Israel's songbook. It was the songs they would sing to God in worship to Him. And just consider this. One-third of these psalms were lament psalms. That, that, that they were not supposed to simply embody and pray personally, but to sing corporately together. There's a kind of complaining that is appropriate. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not giving you permission to vent self-centered rage at God whenever life hasn't turned out the way you think it should or the way you want. I'm not suggesting for a second that you or I have the right to be angry with God because we don't. And I believe that's always, always wrong. But there is a place for crying out to God with this kind of biblical complaining. Where, where the saints of old and where we're called to seemingly throw the promises of God back at Him. We typically, you know, when we think of, of how we respond to the brokenheartedness in our lives, we fall potentially into two camps. We can fall into the first camp of, of anger or denial. We get so angry that we live in a self-made prison of despair and bitterness for the rest of our lives. The bitterness begins to eat away at us, to change us, and to ruin us. Many even turn their back on God, walk away from the faith, and deny even the very existence of God. But the second camp is a group of people who believe that godliness means that we must somehow be devoid of any emotion. We must be stoic Christians who walk around trying to present and project an air of contentment, but we're really only masking the brokenness in our hearts. We walk around and people ask, hey, how's everything going? And we say, everything's fine when everything's not fine. When our world is falling apart, when our lives are falling apart, where, where we look on the outside like everything's okay, we smile as if everything's fine, but inside we're torn to pieces. And loved ones, I want to encourage you. This is so helpful in how we do life together. You see, we can get bitter and pretend that it's okay. We can look at people who are struggling and suffering in this life, and we can simply try to give them the pat answers. We can try to walk up alongside them and, and not sympathize with their, their pain and empathize with their pain. Instead, we can just say, you know what? God's sovereign. You just got to trust Him. And listen, while that's true, that's not what people need in their moments of deep despair. They don't need to be told that God is still in control over their lives and that somehow, hey, God's going to work all things for good. Yes, that's absolutely true. But there are points in our lives where that is not what we need to hear. Whereas the body of Christ, we need to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and lament with those who lament. Yes, we need to move to a place where we trust that God is good and that he's doing good. But we need to see first, listen, that we need to lament with one another. And not rush people past the pain they're experiencing, but help move them through the pain. The Psalms give us permission to cry out to God together. You see, lament is the biblical alternative to this bitterness and despair or this stoic kind of Christianity. 
Lament is found to be the place where we can continue to journey through the pain and suffering. It's godly complaint that expresses disappointment, but it's only one step on the journey towards a final destination of hope and healing. We offer complaints on the basis of our belief in who God is and what He can do. And you see, that's what Naomi has reminded us of. She's spoken to who God is, and it is a reminder of what God can do. Lament is the language of people who believe in God's existence, who believe in God's power, who believe in God's sovereignty, and who believe in God's justice, but who live in a world of tragedy and pain. So you say, how do we do this well? How do we lament well? Well, I want to give you five ways that you can learn to lament well. Kind of a high-level overview of lament. First, you can do this. Bring your questions. When you cry out to God, bring your questions to Him. Right? How long, oh God, where are you? Can you help? Will you help? It's so important that we feel this willingness to bring our questions to God. And God invites our questions. He doesn't reject us because we bring questions. He invites them and he longs to help us wrestle with them. The second thing you can do is bring your frustrations. Similar to bringing the questions, sometimes these things are intermingled. But when we bring our frustrations to God, we're really pouring out our hearts to Him. And there's something helpful and right about regularly laying out the specifics of our pain. God, this hurts. This specifically hurts. My child who has turned away from the faith, it hurts, Lord. My broken relationship, this illness, this death of a loved one, this barren womb, God, it hurts. It hurts so deeply, and I'm frustrated by this, and and I don't understand why this has to happen this way. As we lay out our hearts before God, we see our emotions, we see our feelings. And by the way, it's so important in this process to understand that our emotions are raw and they're real, but they cannot rule. But this is part of how we wrestle through that. We need to see our emotions. We need to tell God how we feel, laying out our frustrations in candid terms, not carrying these frustrations um, in and of our, uh, on our own, producing bitterness in our hearts, but laying them out before God to see how He begins to reorient our feelings and emotions, to adjust them and align them with the truth. Bring your questions, bring your frustrations, bring your honesty. Tell God how you feel. Approach Him like a loving Father who's not looking for you to come and simply give some kind of a superficial answer. Remember that your father loves you. He wants to hear your heart. He wants to bless you. He wants to help you. Remember that you have a savior in Jesus Christ who can sympathize with your weakness. Remember that God knows everything. He's not surprised by your struggles. You don't have to hide anything from God. He knows your hurts already. So just come out with it. Lay them bare. Be honest with your father and watch how he brings comfort to you. This is so important. Bring your humility. Check your pride at the door. Listen, there is no place for proud, demanding questions from a heart that believes it's owed something from God. You know, there's no place for pride and, and demanding anything from God because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If, if we come to God with demands and telling God the way it should be and telling him we don't deserve this, We're demonstrating a proud heart 
who misunderstands the very nature of sin and misunderstands what we actually deserve because of our sin. Our sin demands punishment, but God in His grace doesn't give us what we deserve. God is so merciful and kind, so come with your pain, but don't come with your pride. Ask God to help you strip away the pride so that you can come with honesty and transparency, but you can come simply in humility, trusting God. Lastly, this is so helpful, bring your Bible. Bring your Bible. See, where do I start? I always encourage people, and, and this has been so good for my own heart, go to the Psalms. Pray the, 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 the psalmist's prayers of lament back to God. Embody their thoughts, their emotions, their feelings. Allow them to help you express your own thoughts and feelings to God. Pray the scriptures and see how that becomes a springboard for pulling the, the, the pieces of your heart back together. Listen, to pray in pain, even with its messy struggle and tough questions, is an act of faith in and of itself. Where we open our hearts to God, we trust that God hears and that God is faithful. You see, prayerful lament is, is better than silence. And so many of us react to the pain of life by simply trying to avoid it. We try to be silent in our relationship with God. Many of us are actually afraid to lament. We find that it's too honest, it's too open, and then it's too risky. We're so used to, to presenting ourselves as something that we're really not. We've even become accustomed to doing it with God. But loved ones, let me remind you that silent despair is far worse. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of our unbelief. You see, despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, that God doesn't hear, and that nothing's ever going to change. Tim Keller once said that our hearts will often try to tell us that this is hopeless and it's never going to change, and we need to learn to argue with our hearts. We need to argue back and say, no, that's not true. God is faithful. God is true. God can help. God will comfort. Sometimes the pain in life and the heartbreak we experience feels like we're living in hell. Now, I love what Winston Churchill said. He once said, if you find yourself in hell, don't stop. You have to keep going. Don't stop and look around and sit down in the middle of hell so that it can continue to bombard you. Keep pushing through. And that's what lament teaches us. It's one more step on the way through the pain and heartbrokenness towards hope and healing in God. Finally, I can learn to live through the pain when I understand that eyes will be blind and I must look around for God. It's interesting here that Naomi is back home, and I want you to see this. It says, verse 22, said, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. Here, what we see is that Naomi is still struggling in life, and yet what she finds out is that God has been faithful. Her eyes may have seen some truths of God, but there are some things that she has not been able to see. 
And she needs to look around and see that God has actually been faithful in the midst of the heartache. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Listen, suffering and pain at every level is an opportunity for us to learn and to look around to see God in the small details of our lives. However, we must be willing to listen or to shift the metaphor slightly. We're so often blinded that the, by the pain that we're in. We're so tunnel visioned. The pain just allows us to, to fixate upon the hurt and the despair and the disappointment and we need to learn to look around and see that God is still faithful, that, that God has been faithful in the past, that God is being faithful in the present, so that God will be faithful in the future. And there's some things that Naomi maybe has missed, or, or maybe she's seen them, but she's not stating them here. And we're just simply supposed to understand that she believes this to be true. You see, not only does she believe that God is, is real, not only does she believe that God is powerful, that God is sovereign, and that God is just she believes that God is good. And this is the key. So often we forget this part. We understand this part of the theology of God, that yes, he's, he can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. He's in control. But we need to remind our hearts that God is good and that God does good. I think Naomi believes this. That's why she is where she is. That's why she's come home in the first place. But we need to look around and see how God will often do this in our lives. And, and this story so far has taught us this, that God is indeed good. And we see that because it was God who sought Ruth and Naomi in the first place. Remember all the way back to verse 6, they were in Moab. And all of a sudden, providentially, they hear word, a messenger is sent while they're working in the field and tells them that God has showed up to Bethlehem, the place of bread, and he has restocked the house of bread. God has showed up and there is food again. The famine is over. And you see, in the subtleties, we can miss this. That this was God's doing. God was calling them home. God was at work in their lives, even when they didn't see it. And loved ones, God is so often seeking us in the midst of our bitterness and heart, brokenness and despair. God is seeking us, offering to us good news. Come back to me and find all you need. You see, God, secondly, sustains us. God had sustained Naomi Yes, she'd suffered immensely, incredible tragedy, but up to this point in time, God had sustained her. And, and we see not only did God sustain her while she was in Moab, but God had brought both her and Ruth back to the promised land. Because right now, in this portion of chapter 1, they have arrived in Bethlehem. God sustained them on their journey. And we don't know all the details of what that looked like, but God protected these two widows as they traveled across country. They risked their lives. God had brought them safely home. It's easy to see that God strengthens us as well, to miss, sorry, that God strengthens us. And God strengthens us in a multitude of ways, but I, I wonder if Naomi has forgotten how God has so clearly strengthened her. We see it. We know the beginning and the end of the story, but God has given to her Ruth. Ruth has been a source of God's strength to her. Ruth has clung to her. Ruth has said, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to show kindness to you. I'm going to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. 
I will stay by your side. Later on in chapter 4, we're going to see that Ruth is said to be better than seven sons, better than the perfect sons. You see, God is the provision that Naomi needed in this time of desperation and of pain. And let me just remind you, loved ones, that this is true for you and I. Isn't it so awesome that God has put people in our lives to help prop us up? to walk with us and journey with us through the bitterness of life, through the brokenheartedness of life that we experience. And isn't it awesome that God has put you in somebody's life to walk with them through their bitterness and pain and hardships and trials? Loved ones, this is part of the purpose of the church, the family of God. We are never alone. God saves us into a community where we get to experience moments of mercy together, where we get to contribute to that in one another's lives. How good is God to unite us together to walk with each other in life with Him? Finally, notice this, God saves us. And it can be so hard to see this at times. We feel like There's no reason to go on. We feel like there's no way God could save us. There's no way God could rescue. There's no way God could redeem this situation in my life. But what we see here is that God is the God of redemption. God is the God of salvation. Remember, here, what we're looking at as this chapter comes to a close is that Naomi and Ruth are home. They're in the land of God's promise, and they're in the land of God's presence. God has brought them safely home. They had returned, the text tells us. And not only that, we see the saving, redemptive heart of God in this simple statement that they arrived back at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is an indication, again, that God had saved the land, His people. That God was providing bread for people who were starving. And it's a reminder for you and me that God loves to provide food for those of us who are starving in this life. He holds out to us not just simple physical bread, but He holds out to us the bread of life, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ who would come from Bethlehem who would come for the world, who would say, I am manna sent from heaven, who would invite us to come and eat and find salvation in life. Listen, the people of God, Naomi and Ruth included, their sins were many. They didn't deserve the kindness of God. But what we find out in this story is that while their sins may be many, God's mercy is more. Over and over again, we are reminded that our eyes will be blinded, oftentimes by the pain and bitterness of life. But if we look around, we will see that God is faithful to save His people. And it's belief in God's mercy, His redemption, and His sovereignty that create this kind of lament that Naomi demonstrates for us in this section of Scripture Without hope in God's deliverance, without hope in God's salvation, and the conviction that He is all-powerful and sovereign over everything, there would be no reason to lament when pain invaded our lives. This is what the Psalms teach us. This is what uh, the Book of Lamentations teaches us. This is what Job teaches us. This is what Naomi teaches us here. 
turning back to God and crying out to God are meant to help us look around for God. To see that in our past, God has never left us or forsaken us. To see that right now, in this very moment, God has been at work. We may not see it all, but if we look around, if we look closely enough, if we take off uh, the glasses of pain, we can see the beauty of God's providence around us. We can see that He has been caring for us, and we can be reminded that God will never let us go in the future. We can trust Him. God is good. You see, lament reminds us that this world is broken by sin. But it reminds us, too, that our God is good and that this world, though it is not the way it's supposed to be, one day God is going to come and make all things right. He says in His Word that He will make all things new. He counts our tossings on the bed. He holds our tears in the bottle. His steadfast love endures forever. His mercy knows no ends. And we see this most of all as we look to the cross, where we see that our Savior, Jesus Christ, went through a powerful and profound lament of His own. On the cross and in His death, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, His heart and His body were broken for us so that by His wounds we may be healed. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that reminds us, yes, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Yes, this life is often bitter. Yes, our hearts are broken. But our God loves us and has compassion for us and is merciful toward us. And our God is going to make everything right one day. Hold on through the pain. Take one more step forward. And all those who have eyes to see can look around for God and we can find Him in the person of Christ each and every day. The one who seeks us, the one who sustains us, the one who strengthens us, and the one who saves us. So when you look around, even in the pain of your life, and you see the glimpse of, of Jesus that you so desperately need, grab a hold of Him and cling to Him. Hold fast to the one who loves you and who will never let you go. In March 1767, the pastor and hymn writer, John Newton, he wrote a letter to a friend and he said these words, he said, are you amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you? But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he cast none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but His mercies are more. Our sins are great, but His righteousness is greater. We are weak, but He is power. Yes and amen. Father, we confess this. We are weak, but You are power. Our sins are great, but Your righteousness is greater. Father, our sins are many, but Your mercy is more. Thank You. Thank you that even in the bitterness of this life, we can turn to you, our good and faithful God. You are good and you do good. We trust in you and we sing praise to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.